a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Hello and welcome. There are two reasons why I wanted to have today's conversation. The one conversation I want to have with you is to open all of our horizons. I want the Menopause and Cancer podcast to be really a place of learning, a place of growth. I want it to be an active podcast so you don't just sit there and listen. I want you to walk away with the information that the experts are sharing with us on the podcast and use it for your advantage. Use it so that you can have a more positive and perhaps empowered, whatever that means to you, experience of your post-active cancer treatment life. And part of that is by opening our mind to different stories, different experiences, and by learning from one another. And I feel that over the last many years, I've learned so much from my women, my community, all of those women that have really got my back. And then I realized I know very little about the experience of men. Is there even a word for menopause for men? And how do some of their cancer treatments affect them and their post-cancer physical and emotional life? And the other reason why I wanted to come onto the podcast is to really celebrate all of our friendships we have in life. Our podcast guest today is Kevin Ford, and Kevin has been my husband's oldest friend they've met in their teenage years. And Kev has been a real pillar of support to both Tim and myself over the last many years, ever since I've known him, really. And having Kevin on the podcast today, I'm not only incredibly grateful for his time and that he's willing to talk so openly to me and to all of us, about his experience of cancer and of the late effects of his cancer treatment. But I really want to just celebrate all of these amazing people around us that have helped us get through to where we are today. People have been not just supporting us with being active and actively helping us with childcare when the kids were really little, but by listening and by being there for us and by not judging us and by just I guess, being there for us and holding space for us as a family with our experiences, that is just the most beautiful thing. And I'm so grateful. Kevin always held space for us. And um, he's this most incredible person. And yeah, I just have to welcome him, him in there. Otherwise, I'm going to sing his praises for another hour and you'll get really bored of me. <laughs> but um, let's have this conversation of how prostate cancer affects men, how the effects of prostate cancer treatment affect erectile uh, function and how that can bring on erectile dysfunction, the possibilities that men have in comparison to women, how they talk about feelings like 
sexuality, shame, guilt, fear, all of those things. Let's have the conversation. Hello, Kevin. Nice to see you today. Nice to see you, Dan. So for anyone listening to the show today, Kev, you are my husband's oldest friend. You've known him since we're teenagers, right? Yes. <laughs> and over the years, you've been a fabulous companion to Tim and always been a brilliant friend. But you've always been a real pillar of support for myself when I was going through breast cancer because you always knew what I was talking about because you've made a similar experience twice. Yes, very true. Tell us what happened when you were a young chap in your early 20s. So we initially, I mean, um, I was diagnosed with cancer in my sinuses um, when I was 22. And then they just removed the tumour at the time, but actually they should have done radiotherapy. So um, two years later, the cancer had kind of grown back, almost had grown back and it then spread into the bone on the side of my nose. Because of this, I then had to have further surgery. Then they did do the radiotherapy. And then because of the radiotherapy, they'd removed all the bone around the nose. It caused a hole basically on the side of my nose. So then I had to have um, a skin flap surgery. So there's a lot of facial work that was going on. So that happened about three or four years afterwards. So, yeah, so that was that all happened when I was much younger. So that was my early days of, of cancer and the experience with it. I mean, back then I was under guise initially um, and then got a referral because the surgeon who I saw was quite homophobic, actually. So that was quite an awful experience. So she wow. was quite rude. And so then I was grateful enough to then go to a private GP in Knightsbridge. So a friend of mine had recommended me to go and see this guy. And luckily enough, he was an ENT surgeon, ears, nose and throat surgeon for the Royal Marsden. And he said, I would absolutely love to take you under my wing at the hospital. So I then went over to the Royal Marsden and they were just incredible. Amazing. Couldn't have asked for a better um, experience of hospitals, really. Mm. That must have been a very isolating and lonely place to be in because we run loads of programs for a charity, Trekstock. All the people there are affected by cancer in their 20s and 30s. We know how isolating it can be. No one around you goes through, or yeah. not many people you know go through cancer. And then having met a doctor who was homophobic, that must have been even more isolating, right? There yeah. are layers and layers to the insult, yes. but that it's must have been. Yeah. I must admit, because although... I initially started at King's College and then I left King's to go to Guy's. What happened was I actually sued the hospital because um, wow. they, didn't, they didn't go through the procedure properly. So they did my operation before they saw the CT scan. Wow. So he got the CT scan the following day. So I was, someone said, you should look into it. So I got a, got a, a lawyer to look into it and then, after all the investigations, we then found out that this is how I was going to win my case. So I won the case. Wow. That was about five years after. Do you think you always self-advocate? Because this this takes a level of self-advocacy, right? To go mm -hmm. to the extent to then have a legal case against the hospital. Did you, did you Was that always you, self-empowering, outspoken patient, do you feel? I think it was just I just didn't want anybody else to have to go through that. And I think you could. I think because they dragged it on for such a long time, it, I got to the point going, I don't think I can go through another lawyer because they kept changing the look, my lawyer through through the um, the company that I, I, I'd uh, approached. 
So I think by lawyer three or four, I was like, oh, I can't do this again. And they said, look, stay with us now because we're literally going to be, you know, this will be going to court very, very, very soon. Wow. Or they then decided to settle outside of court. But wow. yes, it was always a very, I've always been quite strong headed and very kind of kept myself being a strong character, I suppose, because of other traumas that had happened prior to that. I think, you know, as with my twin sister. So there's there's a lot of incidents that happened for, for me to be strong and, and to, to get through this. But I had there was a part of me that was determined to see. Yeah. That, and I know hospital, there's a lot of cases that go to court, but um, through negligence and, you know, wrong procedures for example but uh but for me it was very much of if i can do something about this and back then we didn't really have platforms like we do now with internet so we didn't really have any access to anything else so um so now it's a lot easier to get a bit more guidance and and get a bit more support but back then i didn't have any support in in the years that followed you as this young 22 year old in the years of recovery that followed did you have a sense that you were going to be okay? Or did you have a sense that your life here was always threatened? Or always did you come back to us always threatened? Yeah, I think, I think reason being is because a doctor had told me when I got my diagnosis a second time that the chances for me to live beyond 10 years were very, very slim. So I think having that planted in my head and when I got referred to the milestone, they was like, said, no doctor should ever give you a time. But once it had been planted, you can't let yeah. go of that. See, that's, it's there. It's, it's, it's making its way down. But so after when I got to 30, I was like, right, how much longer do I? So I always felt I was living on borrowed time. So going through my 30s, I'm always waiting. But then what I what I did do, though, was also live my life to the full. Yeah. So I travelled. My job took me everywhere, which I was very grateful for. I worked as a hairstylist for fashion, so I was travelling the world. And then when I was home, I was able to go out party, play, you know, go with my friends. And so I kind of lived a life as full as full as full as I can. You did. It didn't stop you. Like I remember so much, and we talked about that so often that I felt so frozen in the years after my diagnosis. Like. I would have loved to have a little bit of you because I was so rigid in my approach. so rigid in my diet. I stopped drinking. I stopped partying. I wanted to get eight hours of sleep. It's almost like my fear stopped me from living this full yes. life. But yes. you had the fear and you lived. And I always found that so inspiring, like yeah. so bloody inspiring. You did live, didn't you? Yes. And I think because like now when I talk about this, because again, they said, if you go to 20 years, um, after surgery, then you have the um, secondary cancers that can occur. So that was always the second load, more fear of like, uh, what's going to happen now? Where's the cancer going to spread? And and even when I went back to the milestone, um, this is about five years or six before this cancer, before the prostate cancer. But um, again, they said there, there is still going to be a possibility that it's going to mm-hmm appear either in your brain in your lungs it will spread somewhere because of the radiotherapy so yes you're constantly living on this fight or flight so you're never really coming away from that and so then having my last diagnosis the prostate cancer I think I went more into your way of being in a sense of stop drinking stop partying and I really and then we went through COVID so I was going through all this recovery being very isolated in my house on my own so there was real lonely 
existence and I was yeah. like do you want to live like this it was just such a tough time but your body just goes in survival mode so that was my way of surviving really almost you can't choose sometimes which way you're going to go isn't it or which way your body is going to unfold you yeah. sort of it happens almost your mind gets stuck on something and it happens I want to talk to you more about your prostate cancer diagnosis yep. because this is almost what I can imagine is very similar to a breast cancer diagnosis or another cancer diagnosis that was hormone driven we then put on uh, medication sometimes that reduces the amount of estrogen that goes into your body and what I gather from you and uh, some other people with prostate cancer it's you have very similar experiences how did you yes. know you had prostate cancer what was your my symptoms, symptoms were I mean they're quite simple really I mean it's literally going to the bathroom go to the toilet and then you're you feel full, so you want to go to, to, the, to you know, urinate, um, but it doesn't really come out that quickly. It comes out a little bit, and you're like, well, I know I've still got urine there. So so what it ends up doing, it's, um, the prostate expands or swells somehow and then presses against the bladder. Mm. So that's why you, you, you always can find out from the bladder, really. So some people might get blood through it, but mine was literally... Um, I knew I knew I wasn't urinating properly. So, yeah. so I took myself to my GP. I was what 46, 47. So I'm now what I'm 54 now. So I had it. So I went to my GP and they said, let's just do a PSA test. And the PSA it, it um, targets your protein in your in your prostate. Um, and mine was I think it was 28, and it should be around two. So although that seems high, but there are people that go up to 400, 500, 800. I mean, it can, okay. know, but once it goes to that level, it's it means the cancer is generally spread throughout your whole body. So that was how I got my diagnosis. So then they did a biopsy, which was at, which I would never recommend anyone doing, where they go up through your anus with, with these pins just to take out a very small sample from the prostate. But then it, by doing that, you could actually create those cells and spread it elsewhere around, around the body. So for me, it just seemed a quite dangerous process. I think as long as you're doing your PA test and then you can do scans or ultrasounds, you can, you can see where the cancer basically is. And it's only when you really open up and go in, if you do the surgery, that you can then see if it's metastasized, if it's come outside of, of the prostate. So, And where were you at? So when you were first diagnosed, what was your diagnosis then? Well, the first diagnosis, we they thought we thought it was just inside the prostate. And so when I came out from therapy, so there, there's so many different um, types of treatment we can have. I'm not sure if you wanted me to talk through them, but there's so many of them. So I don't think it's more about that to talk today. I think it's more about the, the after. Yeah, the after, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they decided for me that it was best for me to have the um, the surgery, the radical uh, prostatectomy, um, just to remove all of it because they believe that some of it has metastasized. So okay. when they went in, they, they actually realized that there was a small amount of cancer cells just outside the prostate. Mm. So because of that, they then decided to put me to do radiation. So I had um, yeah, what, eight weeks, I think eight weeks of uh, localized radiation. Okay, you say in your words, in your language, you say they decided, but I know you have a lot to say about your care. Yes. <laughs> you are, yes. uh, From having spoken to you, I know you are in charge and you are in control of your care. Yeah. I know you haven't accepted all treatments that you were offered. And I know you've really gone around shopping to different yes. places doing your research. So you have decided to go for radiotherapy and surgery. 
Well, yeah, what happened was initially they we talked through. I went I went away, so they were, they were trying to get me to have the operation done quite quickly. And I said, I'm going to go away for a few months, and when I'm ready, I will come back. I'm not going to rush into this process. So I spent about five months, I think, and there were so many variations of treatments, which I didn't even know about. So although I'd gone to, where was I now? Was I back at the Marsden here? No, it was <laughs> King's. Sorry, I, I had to go to King's initially. And then they talked through the treatments they do. But if you go to a different hospital, they do a whole different array of treatments. So it depends where you go. So I just obviously looked into everything. Um, and the one that really stuck out, which I thought I would do, is, is called bracket. Um, brachytherapy where they actually insert these little capsules into the prostate and it's same as radiation but then it just releases slowly and then kills the cells internally wow. so yeah. there were so many different ways of me where there's one called it's called cryotherapy um, where they freeze it so it goes really really cold and that can kill the cells but they said because mine are metastasized my only real option was to remove it. So once I'd gone through and done all the research, I realised process. I'm going to have to remove it. But then because um, of that, I didn't realise I was going to be doing the radiotherapy afterwards. So I just thought I was just going to do the operation. So it's only afterwards they said that there's still cells around there. So we do suggest that you do the radiotherapy. What physical changes has that brought on? So I'm going to explain to you, so you kind of know, so um Obviously, you and I know chemotherapy, you know, we have the, the people might lose their hair. And these are all things that we expect that are going to happen to us. And then I often call, we have a whole bucket of unexpected side effects of mm. long-term cancer treatment. They can be the fatigue that lingers for not just weeks, but for years and, mm. you know, months. We have the isolation that we experience, the low mood, um, depression symptoms, but also physical symptoms, sometimes women are being pushed into menopause and it's the unspoken side effect. Like we are being put onto treatments, like maybe a surgically onset menopause. And it's really important because the ovaries needed to go, for example, for ovarian cancer, whatever it is, it might be radiation, as you said earlier. And then we're left with often really debilitating symptoms of uh, not just low mood, but low sex drive, um, really dry vaginas, really painful sex. And there's so many physical symptoms that we didn't expect. And a lot of times people never talked us through those. So on the podcast, we want to talk about them all. Okay. Did you have a similar experience that there wasn't enough education about how the surgery or radiotherapy is going to affect you? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing, obviously, with all the research, I mean, I think most people know that what can tend to happen is you, you, you can suffer with erectile dysfunction. So that seems to be the big call to most people that not most people, but I'm sorry, a lot of people can go through. So I've got a friend who also went through the same prostate cancer and we were talking literally about two months ago. So he went through the same thing, had his prostate removed, the same as me. But I then went on to do the radiotherapy and by doing the radiotherapy, this impacts your erectile dysfunction even more. So, so that, that was what my experience was in the sense that one to then start it's almost like you start living with the shame around god i can't have erections anymore or but then with all the research i did around that i then realized how much medication was there to support men going through um erectile dysfunction but the other issue again because i was i was going to a group called walnut group that was to basically support the lgbtq community around prostate cancer so so there was a lot of different people in that room that were going through different experiences um, and one of them had to basically wear a pad 
because he could not hold his urine any longer. So yeah. when you remove um, the prostate, you have two valves that control your urine. And then basically once you remove the prostate, it takes away one valve. So you're uh -huh. only left with one. So thankfully for me, in my experience, it was it was always okay. It always seemed to function okay, unless I drank alcohol. So if I drank mm. maybe a cup of two, one glass of wine too much or something, then that would that would then start creating a leak, a leak um, right. for me. Yeah. So I would then have to wear a pad. So it was yes. all these things that I was coming to terms with and then going, God, did, did I know all this? Although I did know a lot of it, but you never quite know what your experience is going to be. So no. the toughest thing for me was learning about what medication you can use. Um, and then first of all, I didn't even want to have sex. I think I became so disassociated because I just didn't feel sexy I didn't feel <clears throat> I felt like I lost my manlyhood really for a long period of time and so that put pressure on my relationship at the time then we ended the relationship ended so we, that was another sad part of and then having to then go out in the world again living with yeah so that yeah. was the toughest part emotionally I mean it, that was really difficult um but the mm. hospital the miles offered me 12 weeks therapy which I, is never enough for anyone that's going through cancer. Um, so yeah. then I had to then find my own way and, and then find therapy afterwards. But um, yeah, but she was amazing, and the doctor, the, the the therapist I saw was so supportive. She was amazing. But yeah, so they, I still live. I still live with um, the worry and the concerns and the shame and the embarrassment about having to use different medications. So because it's so obvious, isn't it? <clears throat> Erectile dysfunction is so obvious. Um, it's you can see it it's there for you or it's not there for you it's so much more subtle when it happens to women and with the incontinence we have the same it's often to do with very low or non you know very low estrogen levels when you're being pushed into this postmenopausal state that women often feel they can't hold their urine they feel like oh my gosh I've got to go to the toilet all the time and at the same time it's having no desire to have sex so it starts with the desire isn't it, it starts with even the thought that it never even crosses women's mind that they would like to even have sex or mm. intercourse or whatever uh, intimacy in a way. And then when it gets there, there might be pain. So there's also the physical thing, but it doesn't show us much. And so I think we've got less of a language even around it as women, less conversation because it's less obvious and it has been less spoken about over the last okay. few years. I, sp I suppose what I've said for women, let's say, what I would. I would imagine is it's very important to try and find sensuality. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so for me, I went through the same process. I, I studied massage years and years ago. So I thought for me to get back into wanting to touch somebody again and be touched by somebody, rather than thinking about having uh, intercourse sexually, I think the whole thing which I wanted to get back in touch with myself was finding the intimacy back in back in making love, really, rather than it all being just around the physical you know you know having the intercourse and I'm wondering yeah. again like for women but you go maybe that's something that you kind of craved and that you know you wanted a bit more intimacy rather than being I don't really want to have sex just yet so there must be pressure as well in, in relationships I think fortunately for men I mean we are like I said I'll, I'll talk through the um the treatments that we have but it's you know we are able to get I'm not, I don't think everybody can but I think most people are able to get an erection with one of these medications. So let me just talk, just to understand the process. So you had radiotherapy, and as soon as you had radiotherapy, you realized you couldn't get an er erection. Is that right? Or was there a, did it take a while? 
yeah, nothing happened for a long while. And then the hospital then, I think we had this conversation before, but they wanted to put me on a hormone replacement therapy. And I said, I need to go do some research again. And the amount of research I did on it, I said that this, I would never touch that at all for me in the right. sense of, because it just changes all your hormones in the sense of they give you more estrogen, they take away the testosterone. So you then start putting weight on, you start growing female boot it's everything your whole body changes and and they state that yes it will go back to some kind of normality but the more research I did I was finding out that it's, it takes a very 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 long time for your body then okay. to start adjusting again so I opted out of that uh okay. that, that decision um and I think it was the best thing I ever did because I think for me to go down that road of taking the hormones I think I would have been extremely depressed I think I would have hit rock bottom wow so I think and that's empowering, isn't it? To to not take something, to opt out. It's difficult. It's much easier really, to do as you're told. Ever, yeah, and no one would, I think everybody else, I think they, they even said to me, I was the only person that's refused to do it. And I said, because sometimes, again, when you do research or if you, if you speak to other patients in the hospitals, they're like, they just want the doctors to tell them what to do and yeah, what, yeah. Is right, what is the right um the right what medication or the right uh, surgery to do so it's um but for me I had to research everything that I thought was going to be that was going to benefit or support mm. me. so that was one thing I I didn't do I was on a trial so it's quite I, it would have been quite interesting if they come back to me going oh, it's great that you didn't do the hormone because you're still all clear so you don't need to put yourself through that. I, I personally, with the again, with the knowledge I, I got from it, was it, this was very old school way of um, therapy to, uh, okay. treating uh, prostate cancer. We are led to believe that testosterone can cause the cancer. So let's take away the testosterone. But I think but we I, have the same conversation for women, Kev. You know, women are so scared of estrogen then suddenly and, and we get medication that strips our body of estrogen. And it's so fascinating to talk to you how similar really our experiences are, mm. where they differ. And I just want to know how long it took for you to think I want to do something about my erectile dysfunction. I, I went into it straight away because when I was with the Marsden, they talked me through the, the medication I could take. But then again, they only saw you for about four weeks and then they showed you how to be, you can inject the base of your penis. So that's the last process. So you have um, Viagra's, they offer you Cialis's. So there are two variations of, of tablets you can take. Then from there, you have these urethra sticks and they're called alprostradil uh, urethra stick so there where you pop, pop down the shaft of the penis you massage it and then that can bring in an erection for you as well but then you do have the cavajet injections which is kind of the, the last source really of, of, of medication but it does so you start works. with the viagra Definitely. and then you sort of work your way through these treatments is that how really? yeah, the approach I mean, when, works when have radiotherapy i have to take five milligrams it's a very small dosage of um viagra this just helps keep the, um, the blood vessels open very slightly because of the radiation. I think as we all know, it can, it can start um, narrowing the, the vessels down. Yeah, so I have to take that on a, on a daily basis. But if I then choose to take three in one day, if I to boost an erection, it, it now, I think as time went on, I was able to get more, more movement, but it took a while after the radiation, you kind of had to wait for all that to go down. And, then they offer you a pump so you've got to exercise it so you have to you know do that for quite a while so it was very time consuming mentally and physically really in the sense of yeah trying awesome. to get your body to function as, as 
I'm not going to say normal, but as best it could, really, or best yeah. it could. So that went on for years. That's, I mean, it's, although I've kind of stopped doing the pump, which, which I, they do recommend you continue doing it. But my friend who went through the prostate cancer as well, he didn't have the radiotherapy and he was getting erections literally within a week of the operation. He said he gets more erections now than he did beforehand, which I find quite fascinating. Yeah. But I think it's the radiation that I think damages the all that area around it. So all the nerves and emptiness. And you really don't ever know how anything is going to affect you or what symptoms we're going to walk away from, what long-term effects. And then we also don't know how are they going to feel, like what impact is this going to have? Because if someone explains a side effect to you when you're going through your initial cancer treatment, you're going to really worry about firefighting the cancer, aren't you? And those side effects, you know, I would have given my left arm when they said, I take all your lymph nodes out. I would have said, have my arm. Well, now I live with a chronic lymphedema it's suddenly not so funny anymore because it's actually really debilitating. Even mm. 10 years after, you know, at times it can be a struggle to manage and to sort of stay on top of things. There was a real process though, and this is something I think we're lacking as women, the aftercare, like that you have tools and aids from Viagra to pumps to sticks that you can draw on. There are techniques and there is help. I think we have a lot less, I guess it's, very self-explanatory isn't it um sexuality for men and women has always been differently talked about and addressed in a way but i suppose also we have to remember that um one in three men i think it's one in three actually suffer with erectile dysfunction so regardless of the cancer or not people still have to you know so it's a very huge thing for, for guys to to have to you know so there's a yeah. lot of people being diagnosed so i think that obviously pushed the pharmaceutical comes to, to find ways for men to get erections. Um, yeah. So I think because of that, for me, again, my experience, I know I'm able to get erections, but the, the other problem that I now have is if I go to ejaculate or obviously you can't produce sperm anymore. So there's no sperm. Ah, so okay. I don't have that anymore, but urine can come out because it's connected. Mm. So when you go to do the ejaculation, urine can come out which then makes me feel even more uncomfortable because you yeah. don't want it to to go on to someone so all that conversation you've either got to have with someone beforehand so there's a lot of uncomfortableness yeah it. and shame mm. and worry mm. and worry about embarrassing, rejection yeah. embarrassing yeah. so you had a relationship <laughs> that sadly didn't last and then you were dating again like how do you navigate explaining what is going on with you when you're did you want a relationship or when you want to date I mean that's difficult to have isn't it that conversation yeah it was actually I, th I think I was very fortunate when I did start dating someone because I explained to him straight away what I was going through because we were we had this really the first couple of days was all very being very open about ourselves and his background my background and I think he just fell in love with who I was and the sense of how strong mm. I was and what I'd gone through so I think there was that there was that beautiful side of it. And he just was very, very caring and nurturing. So that mm -hmm. kind of went on for a couple of years. So and he was very comfortable with, with, with my with the urine if it if it come out. So there was no, there was never any concern. So he kind of gave me the confidence to go out there and yeah. have sex if I wanted to. Um so unfortunately that that relationship ended a little while ago. But it's so I'm still more, I am comfortable to go out and search for a partner or you know, try to find someone to have a relationship with because 
it can function if I need it to or want it to. Yeah. But obviously it's never going to be like it was. So I try to see my glass half full rather than being half empty. And how did you have the courage to talk about that openly? Because if you say one in three men has an an issue with erectile dysfunction, and that is without prostate cancer, without mm-hmm. the diagnosis of cancer, these people aren't talking about it, right? I recently run a Wim Hof uh, workshop and we had a mixture of 40 people and more than half were men. And it was a really open day and people really shared and we did loads of breathing exercises and there was trauma release. It was a fantastic day. But what I learned from that day is how far behind, like you blokes, are ladies behind us women in terms of your ability to talk and communicate what's going on for you mm. and to acknowledge and share your feelings. Like those blokes, they were all brilliant and open-minded. Otherwise, they wouldn't have turned up in the first place. But they were astounded by us women being in touch with our emotions, by talking and articulating what we feel. And I thought, wow, so you, how did you manage to even discuss those things? I think for me, because as you know, I, I then went to, I started training as a psychotherapist counsellor. So I, I think know, you me, are now. Huh? <laughs> you are this amazing therapist now. I am therapist now. Yes, I'm now. qualified and working as a therapist, which is amazing. But, um, but it was very much for me to go through the journey of, um having therapy because you have therapy throughout the whole course so I think that allowed me to talk a lot about my my emotions behind it and the, and the pain I was living with around that but I just thought it's very much to be you have to accept who you are you have to come to terms and it's about acceptance and I think if I can't be honest with myself then I can't be honest with anybody else so I think for me it was very important that sometimes I don't even have to have the conversation See what I mean? So if I do, if I if I yeah, was say, yeah. have, going on a date with someone and sitting, if we were to go to have sex together, sometimes I don't have to have that conversation because I know what my medicine is going to do. So I kind of know which one I can take. And sometimes I can just go and sneak off and prepare myself and yeah. then they don't need to know. So that, that's happened yeah. a lot um, in the sense that, you know, I don't really want to have that conversation. But it's because, um, like as we said before, a lot of men can... Live, you know, do live with erectile dysfunction anyway. So even if you just say I'm going to take some medication or do something, yeah, yeah. I think there's, um, I think I've started becoming more aware that there was less shame around it. Or there was less. I was feeling less embarrassed about having to go off and use them, or if I really felt the need. If I had a very good connection with someone, then yes, I can talk about it. Yeah, them, um, like I did with my the partner I was with, and he was very open to, you know, to me using you know the medication. So it's choosing, isn't it? It's the choice to communicate what you want to say or how much you want to share at a particular time. And that is empowering, isn't it? Knowing when is the right time to discuss what or not to discuss it is equally empowering, isn't it? Yes. And I think it's knowing what, what's right for you. And then, yeah, I think it's, it's it's when you feel right about telling someone and if you feel the need to do that. But there has been a lot of times where I haven't even wanted to go on a date because sometimes you've got to, I've got to, find that sex drive almost because like beforehand I was very before this all happened I was quite sexually driven so once we that the, the the operation happened for me things really slowed down so I don't have that drive to have sex like I used to mm-hmm. and so because I don't really I don't ever really have natural erections I may I may get one every now and then if I'm sleeping and I think that's when your, mm-hmm. your body's very relaxed but on the whole, I, it's like I've almost I've got to stimulate it to, to feel aroused. And it's, yeah. so it's almost like that catch-22. If I don't stimulate myself, I won't get 
aroused if you don't get aroused you're not going to so it's really yeah. it's not a natural process anymore in the sense of it's not organically she was saying it's not organic it's yeah it's got to be thought about and processed so it's and a I guess thinking. this is the biggest validation that you could have given every single listener on the podcast just now it's not a naturally driven process anymore for most of us it is something that requires planning um thinking about talking about um preparing for and in i think once, yes yes I, and i think in the in the women's experience and all the women i talk about it is also that it is mm-hmm. it is taking the time out to talk about it differently to think away from their pov you know you know i have the teenage daughters and we always talk about sex and intimacy now and they teach me they say mom it's not just pov and that's penis in vagina <laughs> it's more than that and you know there's so much more to sex and intimacy and it's really rethinking it and and knowing it's changed and accepting it's changed and we can do a lot with it if we want to yes and I think for me also though it's very much this is why I started doing my course I had to find something to take my mind off almost or find something something else to put my energy into rather than focusing on the relationship and the and the sex and because I was quite like I said quite Quite, quite driven by sex so it's very important for me to find another outlet hence doing the, the therapy work and then really mm. understanding who I was really and going mm. right the way back to childhood and, you know literally going back to birth and literally doing so much research into who I was and, and what got me to where I got to really so wow um, and you know I think everyone has their all has their own stories from their childhood and you know and the traumas that you go through and so it just it, it allowed me to recognize and and almost um forgive the you know my younger self and you know and find some nurturing for what happened so but I do think obviously sometimes with cancers things come up in your body because of your past um Mm. and I don't know whether because I did have a high sex drive what you know there's reasons where that came from which I won't go into detail but it was but I think there was that then just could have triggered off the prostate cancer for me so Mm. I mean when I listen to you all I can hear from your words is this incredible personal growth you've gone on your whole life from when you were this young chap 22 first diagnosed with how you then lived life to the full but with the existential uh, worry about life and will I keep on making it to the 10 years to 20 years then another cancer diagnosis and your whole sexuality and identity around mm-hmm. sexuality has changed yeah. but so much personal growth that has happened would you take all your past as it was to be where you are right now with the wisdom and the personal growth or would you no, undo I the think, cancer? I, don't think, I think had I continued my lifestyle and it was quite a hedonistic lifestyle, if I'm honest, I don't think I'd be here now. No, I think, I think my, I think my body had to do something to shock me if I'm honest. Wow. So wow. I think it's, um, I mean, whether I would have got off of my hedonistic lifestyle you know, by getting a little bit older um, but I think my body was going to you, this needs to stop. And I think it was, mm. that was the only way to put those brakes on and then wow. kind of completely change my whole lifestyle really. So that, and I think I needed to go through that. Um, mm. would I want to go back? I don't know. It's, 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 it's quite difficult sometimes because it's like, so I mean, hard. yeah, it's, um, I mean, I just, I just have to accept what has happened I know. Um, rather than going could have, should have, would have. It's very much, know. this is what I have. And make the best of what I have, really. So that's where that's how I try to live my day to day life. But there are times, I'm sure, for everybody, 
where we do feel sorry for ourselves and go, you know, I wish I wasn't living like this because being a gay man, I find that the difficult part where most men, they're all driven by sexual organs. So it's kind of, and that's, that sometimes makes me feel a little bit insecure sometimes around that. So mm. I still have to deal with those, with those um, insecurities that arises. Thank you for sharing them today. If any other man was listening to our podcast today and I'm going to put a resource in the bottom anyway to what you think is helpful what would you what, what would a good piece of advice be if someone is navigating prostate cancer the late effects of their treatment I would do as much research as what you know just to look in what's out there and as I said before each hospital does various treatments so I would just do as much research don't be forced into having the operation straight away just take time and just do as much as you can. Don't just leave it for the doctors to say, here's your, this is what we're doing for you. Although some people want that, but it, for me, it was um, just do your research. Yeah. And then also talk about it. I think it's really good and really important to share what you've gone through. So you're not living in shame or you know, living with it on your own. I think the more people you put it out to, mm. um, which I always, yeah, as you, you know, I, I put it onto Facebook and just so people that who knew me, I would share my prostate cancer experience and yeah, the hospital treatments and come doing my five-year-old clear. I just, I didn't want to live on my own with it. It's very much, yeah. yeah, just, just get as much support as you can, really. Thank you for supporting all the blokes out there listening to this on the Menopause and Cancer podcast. And thank you for being such a lovely friend to Tim and having my back for all those years. Bless you. Anytime. Um, Love to speak to you. Love to have a nice chat been lovely to talk to you and um, lots of love. <laughs> lots of love to you. Take care, Dan. Take care. Bye. Oh my gosh, I just love talking to Kevin. I'm not sure how you're feeling now having listened to him talk, but I'm feeling empowered again with a renewed sort of sense of enthusiasm to really embrace where I'm at right now and use what I've got with my abilities and disabilities with everything that works for and against me and to almost start from scratch and think what have I got now how are things working for me and what would I like to have and what would I like to happen just like Kevin says it's is it because of is it despite of everything that has happened to us we are where we are at and the only thing that we we can really do for ourselves is just accept it for now and then decide what we want to do with it I am so in awe of Kevin for having spoken so openly about his sexual experiences, how they have changed since his cancer treatment, and also about his worries and fears ever since he was a young man diagnosed with cancer at the age of 22. And there's so much I have learned from speaking to Kevin. I think I'm also really passionate about bringing many more people onto the podcast that just have different stories to tell because it's so refreshing, right? When you tap into a different perspective, when you start to learn about other people's experiences, it just helps put my own experience, I don't know, in relation somehow. I don't know. It just helps me not be so scooped up in my own experience and that being the only experience I want to address and talk about it. You know, the world is this big and amazing and colorful place and we've all got different paths and different journeys we're on different experiences and sometimes just like today my conversation with Kevin is crossing all of your paths and that rippling effect will will really carry on and I hope that by 
tapping into other people's experiences and we can find a good place to validate our own, to accept our own, to feel more compassionate for others and to never think that we know whatever is going on in anyone else's world, but actually to accept and to know that we really never have a clue because from the outside it might look and feel very different to what someone is experiencing. I can't thank Kevin enough for having this open conversation with us and I can't thank you enough for engaging with us and for being on this journey with us all. Wherever you are right now, whatever you're doing, I wish you a good day. Right now I'm looking out at the blue sky. It's um, a lovely, a lovely day and I'm feeling re-energized and inspired after this conversation and I hope you feel too.